You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport here. Before we get to the podcast, reminder that this Wednesday, 7 o'clock Eastern, I'm holding my Get Your Show Off the Ground seminar online. You can participate, get a chance to pitch your project to me, and I'll help you with whatever is holding you back. Or you can also audit for only 25 bucks. Check out all the information on the blog. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land. Ken Davenport here. This is the Producers Perspective podcast. So I was going to start this podcast by saying we have another first today and that we had our first stage manager on the show. But to call my guest today just a stage manager would be like calling the president just a politician. (laughs) I am pleased to welcome to the podcast the recipient of a Tony honor for his contributions to the theater, Mr. Peter Lawrence. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Ken. That was a very good intro. Well, you deserve it. Uh, Peter has been a production stage manager, production supervisor, associate director for some of the best in the business, a director for like umpteen different shows. Certainly check out his Playbill Vault entry. And we're talking massive shows. Um, in the biz, if you've got a big show, Peter is like the first person you call. We're talking the original companies of Miss Saigon, Sunset Boulevard, Shrek. Again, he's worked uh, alongside directors like Mike Nichols, Sam Mendes on Gypsy, where I met him. Uh, he's actually on Long Day's Journey in tonight, right now, three hours and 45 minutes of drama. <laughs> Peter, let's uh, start with how you got into the business. And ready, here's my big impersonation of a stage manager. Go. I lied, is how I got into the business. I came to New York to be a drama critic, Ken. I've been a drama critic. Um, I have a master and MFA in directing from University of Hawaii, best time of my life. And uh, I came to, I was a drama critic for a year for the Honolulu Advertiser, which is the morning paper. And there's an enormous amount of theater out there. And I thought, I can go to New York and be a drama critic. So I came to New York and, of course, got howled out of almost every newspaper in New York City. And I would write sample reviews and send them in. So I was selling tickets at the Mercer Arts Center, an off-Broadway complex of theaters that fell down famously in 1974. And uh, a guy walked into the office one day, the the box office, a guy named Harvey Medlinski. I don't know if you would know that name or not. He was Mike Nichols' first stage manager. Barefoot in the Park, Odd Couple, he did all those. And he had fallen on hard times and was stage managing an off-Broadway show. And he said he'd been hired to produce a chain of dinner theaters. And did I know of any good stage manager? I said, oh, I'm a stage manager. What does it pay? And it paid more than it paid at the box office. So I said, I, I'm a stage manager. And that literally is the start of the entire thing. And I just made it up as I went along. And that's how I got started. So I went from dinner theater to stock to off-Broadway uh, to national tours to Broadway shows. I did my first Broadway show in 1977. So in one sentence... What If someone said, uh, what does a stage manager do? How would you describe it in one sentence? A stage manager makes things possible. Um, for instance, 
every show, I can't do it in one sentence, Ken, sorry. But um, No one can. <laughs> I always try to get people to do one sentence, but that's why you're all good well, guests. Well, makes things possible, period. How's that? But what it also means is keeping things safe, making sure that the, the artistic environment is safe for the actors backstage. Um, I'm a production guy, and as we were saying even before we started this, I get sort of bored calling cues. But I'm never bored putting a show together. I don't care what the show is. I don't care whether people think it's good or bad. I love it. I love putting together shows. So in putting together the show, on musicals, it mostly has to do with the architecture. To make sure that the set can whirl around and move properly and not kill anybody. And on a play, it normally means keeping an environment in which the actors feel free to make fools of themselves. And Mike Nichols really taught me that. He really gave me an aesthetic about making sure that being a fool in rehearsal is an okay thing to do. Because that's how you find things, you know, in rehearsal. Mike would humiliate himself sometimes in rehearsal just to give the actors the freedom to do so. He would tell stories on himself that were terrible, humiliating stories. But then the actors felt like they could take chances. So I think my job is to make sure that everybody can do theirs. That is sometimes a director, if it's a new director, may need some help. Sometimes it might be a designer who needs help. Sometimes certain actors need help and encouragement and need a pal. It depends upon the show, but I think it's, I think my job is to make things possible. Having been through the production period of so many shows, and can you get a sense of when a show is going right and when a show is going wrong in that period? You're probably not going to like this answer, Ken, but the problem is I fall in love with my shows. And uh, I'm, you know, it's like when you first start dating someone, you don't, like, notice that tattoo. <laughs> so sometimes when I'm in rehearsal, I, not sometimes, all the time, I fall in love. Jonathan Kent, with whom I just did uh, Long Day's Journey Tonight, directed uh, Man of La Mancha, which I did with him. And um, I was the associate director on that one. And so... We're sitting together in a rehearsal hall, and Stokes, Brian Stokes Mitchell, was the star. He came in and had a new take on the impossible dream, you know, that, that old saw that everybody knows. He sang the song, and it was so moving and so original, I completely burst into tears. And Jonathan Kent said, hey, you're supposed to be objective. And I said, I'm here to fall in love. And that is true. I think I fall in love with my shows. Later on, I may look back on a show and say, whoa. I fell in love with the wrong girl, or how come I didn't see she was so ugly, you know? But I never do it when it's happening. I have to love my shows. Could you work on a show that you were not in love with? I never have. So, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Listen, you know my career. I've done a lot of flops in my life, too. I love them all. You know, I did a show called Copperfield back in the 80s. That closed. I think we closed in like 10 days or something like that. And my grandmother was the only person besides me who loved that show, you know? I loved it when I was doing it. I can't help myself. Okay, so you're a director as well. And there was a time when the path to directing always led through a stage manager, or very famously did for some like how Prince started that way. Sure. Um, why do you think great directors, or why do you think stage managers make very good directors? It's a fine question, and almost unanswerable. Because, you know, George Abbott famously was also a stage manager. Um, I'm not so sure it's true anymore, for one thing, because the English influence has come over to this country heavily. And as you know, in England, stage managers are thought of as crew and as sort of are treated as crew. So I think 
I think that any English influence here would almost never allow a stage manager to become a director. I mean, I did work for Cameron as an associate director, and I have, in fact, I have directed some stuff for Cameron, but it's, it's highly unusual that that happens these days. I think also the American system, you know, I wrote this book about stage management, and the reason I wrote the book was my perspective is an American perspective which is that the stage manager controls and is responsible for everything upstage of the proscenium arch. I mean, listen, you know me, I'm famously sometimes combative about that to make sure that, that I can represent everything upstage, technically, artistically, and also the welfare of the company. I, I really believe that should happen. And so in the old American system, when there were fewer people doing things, the stage manager naturally put in all the understudies, naturally directed the national tours, and naturally moved into, uh, just naturally moved into directing. I think it's not true anymore. I think associate directors are now mostly the path to directing. Many schools that teach stage management do not allow stage managers to take directing courses. There's a separation that's happening in the academic world, but it's also, I think, happening you know, just because of the English influence over here. I think it is, it is not so much a path anymore. And I have to say, I know about myself. I told you I have an MFA in directing. And uh, for myself, I'm a better stage manager than I'm a director. And I know that about myself. So I feel more anxious when I'm directing because I don't feel the confidence I feel as a stage manager. As a stage manager, listen, you know me, Ken. I, I, I'm completely ridiculously confident in what I do. I don't feel that. As a director, I can do it, and mostly I enjoy it. And remember Dorothy Parker was asked once, do you like to write? And she said, no, I like to have written. That's sort of what I feel about directing. Do I like to direct? Not so much. I like to have directed, you know? Well, that self-awareness, obviously, I think is very important. I know so many people that aren't that self-aware about things that they do, and that prevents them from moving forward in the other thing that they are so great at. Right. So um, this is a two-part question. Uh, you've worked on a lot of shows as a stage manager. As a, From the stage manager perspective, what has changed the most in the last couple decades? Boy, I can really answer that question. So I grew up in the era of Manny Eisenberg, Mike Nichols, Gene Sachs, later Cameron McIntosh, rough customers in the best sense of the word. And let me use Manny as an example. Um, everybody knows Emmanuel Eisenberg. Manny had a group of people. Artie Sicardi was one. Pete Feller was one. His directors were Mike Nichols, Gene Sachs, those guys. We would get together in a room, and everybody, and the company, and General, Leonard Soloway was the general manager. Um, every, we would get into a room and slug it out in terms of what the show should be, what the calendar should be, how much time we needed, how much money we needed. And everybody was allowed to have a firmly, and I want to say loudly, held opinion. And then Manny would say, okay, I've heard everybody, here's what we're going to do. I loved that way of working. And I never felt unheard. I never felt that there were things unexpressed that I had to say. And I believe it's a great way of working. I think we live in an era of nice now, in which firmly and certainly loudly held opinions are not welcome. That is, I've had to uh, cut back 
my opinions in, I know you find it hard to believe, but I, I've had to cut back my opinion expressing in recent years. I did, um, uh, I did Shrek, which was produced by DreamWorks. And I learned a lot. I did a lot of reading after that because it was a hard experience for me. And I think probably for them too. But it was a hard experience because I expressed myself forcefully. And I learned that I did readings on corporations. And corporate executives are meant to toe the corporate line. That is, there's a corporate line and you are meant to espouse that corporate line in a corporation. Almost any book you would read on a corporation will tell you that. And I think... I was viewed as a corporate executive on Shrek because I was employed by DreamWorks. And when I would say things that were counter to what uh, DreamWorks might have wanted because I wanted to express my opinion on whatever it was, it wasn't particularly welcome. I think this was my fault and not theirs. I didn't understand the environment I was in. Um, and Dream, they're very smart guys, DreamWorks. I just, I think I expressed myself incorrectly on that show. And so, I've learned, and I've tried to, I think every five years our business changes almost entirely. You know this better than anybody, Ken. You are changing it. And I think I've got to change with the business if I want to stay in the business, and that's what I'm trying to do. Another very self-aware comment. I love it. Okay, so I'm going to, I want your opinions, though. I want <laughs> you to be as opinionated. So now I ask you from the stage management perspective and your personal perspective how uh, the business has changed. But now, stand back. You're not employed by DreamWorks or any corporation right. right now on this podcast. What do you think? How has the business changed as a whole? What's the biggest change you've seen, for well, better or for worse? I think you said it correctly in the Times recently, you know, when you were talking about the rich get rich and the poor get poorer. That I think, you know, that's what's happening in the country, too. But I think, listen, in the 80s, Jim Woolley, who was my assistant on God knows how many shows, I think I've lost count. But Jim Woolley and I did two flops a year, all through the 80s. And you could do a show, you know, almost all the shows I did were under a million dollars. I mean, I know that inflation has changed all that. But shows would come and go, and they would close quickly as well. You know, we're talking about there are a number of shows that are currently running right now that we all read variety. We know what the grosses are on these shows. We know how much money they're losing, but yet they continue to run. I think there's... One of the reasons I'm happy, I have to tell you, I'm blow a little smoke here, that, I'm, that you're producing is because you actually know what you're doing. And there are very few producers, because most producers, as you well know, are investors now, and who aren't professionals at what they do. But what they want to do is invest in something in the same way they might invest in a shoe company or something like that. So what has changed for me is the hands-on sense of, of keeping a lid on the money that is spent on a show uh, because most producers don't read ground plans anymore. They don't read a light plot. So they don't really know what they're spending. They don't know what they're getting into. That there's the sense of very few professionals producing, directing, stage managing shows that we all know how to do. That has, that has slightly gone away in favor of a lot of people who are who are not full-time professionals in the theater doing it. Um, I don't know if that's a clear answer or not, Ken. I don't think that was a very clear answer. Well, it included Ask a compliment to me, so I'll take that. <laughs> I think it's a very clear answer, and thank you for that. Uh, what about technology in the theater? Obviously, working on some of these giant shows, you put a helicopter on stage. Right. 
How do you think that has changed over the last couple decades? And is that better for the theater? Do you like where technology is going? I think, I think all that stuff. I think any kind of progress is good for the theater. Uh, technological, artistic, whatever it is. As a stage manager, these things are really interesting. When I did uh, Sunset Boulevard, that was 1993. That was at the time the biggest show ever done. And then when I did Shrek, what was that, five years ago? That was the biggest show ever done. We invented technology for those shows. That is really interesting to me as a stage manager. When you get into that, nobody's ever done it. Nobody ever flew a 35,000-pound piece of scenery before Sunset Boulevard. Nobody had ever tried to do three non-concentric turntables on a deck before Shrek. Figuring that stuff out is so interesting. And um, so I'm pro-technology all the way. I think it's, it's really enjoyable for me as a stage manager. As a producer, if I were thinking like a producer, I would want to think twice about it. You can get very involved in the technology, and is it really serving the play? I mean, are you telling the story well with the technology that you're bringing into it? And sometimes technology is for its own end. I think, and I think that is not a good thing for the theater. Listen, we're all in the service of telling a story. That's all we do. That's, we have no other function. And Mike Nichols always used to say, everyone serves the play. The producer, the playwright, everybody serves that idea. And if you can't serve that idea, get out of the way. I think that sometimes we get so involved in technology and it being interesting on its own that it gets in the way of the play itself. You know, there's... Um, uh, the play that I'm doing right now, I'm doing uh, Long Day's Journey Into Night, one of the greatest American plays, if not the greatest American play ever written, with a cast that you can't beat with a stick. They are all wonderful people and a very well-directed production. We have fog in the show, and the fog, um, it runs all the way through the fourth act and a lot of the third act. And it's, you see it upstage at these windows, right? It's very well done. It's beautifully done and beautifully lighted by Natasha Katz. I wonder sometimes, I find myself sometimes being distracted by the fog. And I wonder anything that takes away from the words that are being said, O'Neill's words and the acting that is being done by these people, is not a good idea for me. So it's an open question whether that fog is such a, is a really a good idea or not. It's beautiful, but does it help the play? I don't know. I mean, I'm not the right one to answer that question. But so I like technology. I like figuring things out. I'm a production guy. That's what I do. And, um, but I always want to make sure that it serves the play itself. You know. One of a stage manager's jobs or duties is to make sure that backstage environment is always a positive one, that the play happens artistically, socially, all those things. And often on your shows, you've had big, big stars on your shows that you've had to deal with. What's it like when there's a star backstage, a giant Hollywood, a Glenn Close on Sunset, or a Bernadette, or Jessica now? How, how do you make sure that that environment stays I have to say, at the very top of show business, and all those people you just mentioned are at the very top of their game, they're all great. It's only sometimes the second level people, you know, you go down a tier, they're trouble because they want to somehow flex muscles that they don't have. Colleen Dewhurst and Zoe Caldwell brought me into the Broadway environment. Those, without those two women, I would not have a career. And they taught me how to behave in the theater, and they taught me how to not instruct, that's too strong a word, but encourage others to behave. Um, so all I've worked with truly great stars, and they've all behaved beautifully every time. Bernadette, as you well know, you can't find a better human being on the planet than Bernadette Peters. 
You know, she sponsors animal rescues. She does Broadway Barks, which I do every year with her. She, and they're all great. Jessica, I had Jessica Lang. I had no idea what to expect from a big movie star, you know, who basically is less known for the theater than she is for films. She's great in every way. We talk every night. She has no star attitude at all. She only wants to do the work. That's all she cares about. Michael Shannon, John Gallagher, Gabriel Byrne, one of the funniest people I've ever met. They're all wonderful to work with. And all they want to do is the work. They don't care about being stars. Glenn Close, I mean, really a big movie star as well as a big Broadway star. Heaven to work with. Heaven. I'm just in touch with her now. Because, you know, she just did Sunset again as a concert over in London. She's going to bring it over here. I just put in touch with her because I can't wait to see it again and to see her do the performance. So I've never... I've had trouble with, you know, sort of second-tier stars, but, um, and usually the way that I handle this is the way you would handle it, too, is simply go to them and say, this is the effect it's having on the show. This is the effect you want it to have. And I don't know how else to do it, but to put it in their laps and say, this is what's going on. How do you think we're, we're Broadway is doing artistically or compared to other years that you've been in the business? Or let me ask you, I'm going to read start a brand new question it's called my Groundhog Day question okay if you could live any Broadway year over and over again and again what year would it be oh my god Ken that's a really fine question do you mean my own Broadway year or the year of Broadway the year of Broadway when basically what year of your life was the best Broadway year you can remember I would have to say 1976 would have to be it because that was the year of Chorus Line and Chicago. Um, I don't know what I was... Oh, I hadn't done a Broadway show at that point. I was just... I was living... I didn't do my first Broadway show until the next year. But to have Chorus Line and Chicago... And Chicago was, as you remember, subsumed by Chorus Line. I saw Chicago three or four times, the original production. I mean, because it had Gwen Burton in it. It had Cheetah Rivera in it. Do you know what I mean? And then I worked with Stan Lebowski. Remember? Five, six, seven, eight. Stan Lebowski. Those shows changed my life. When, But also, you look at a year like 1969, I think it was. I was living in Hawaii. I was teaching at the University of Hawaii then. And I would fly into New York from Hawaii and see shows. But that was the year I saw Company for the first time. I saw Company and Borstal Boy, the Brendan Behan, on the same day. It's hard to say. I, you know what, Ken? The year that I'm living in is always the best year. This is the year of Hamilton. This is the year of Hamilton. It's going to change the world. Hamilton. The artists are in charge again. You know? I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda, there is no better person to lead the theater and the world, as far as I'm concerned, than him. He really means it. He's really smart. He's really talented. And he's really politically committed. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, too. So. I want to go back to this idea of you because you're such a production guy and you've witnessed so many major shows, big successes and also some big flops coming together. I, you know, if I needed a diagnosis of how a musical was going, I would call you. If there was one thing, one element that you could point to as being the most important part of making sure a musical is a success, what would it be? Would you point to the book? Would you point to the costumes? Would you point to the star? Well, famously, Garth Drabinsky years ago 
did an interview in the New York Times that said, in which he said he had figured out the, the way in which every show that he would do would be a hit. He'd figured out how to do musicals, and he never had a hit again. I think, listen, you know better than anybody can, that chemistry, it's somehow about the chemistry of the room. And there is... In the first place, I would be the wrong person for you to call because I would be in love with the show that I was doing. So I would say, it's great, I love it, it's, oh my God, it's the best thing I've ever done. So I would be the wrong person in that way. But I don't, I mean, you look at, like Mike Nichols, in my lifetime, the best director ever. He's done some terrible shows. You know, I, you know, I did Country Girl with him, which was not a good production. And with wonderful people in it. There were terrific people and a great script and Mike Nichols directing. Sometimes things simply go wrong for reasons you can't imagine. I did The Goodbye Girl. The Goodbye Girl, Gene Sachs directing, Marvin Hamlish, David Zippel, Neil Simon, Manny Eisenberg, Bernadette Peters, and Marty Short. Slam dunk. I bought a ticket. I think it's the only time. I was in college at the time and I saw the full page New York Times ad and all those names that you just rattled off. And yeah. I was like... How can this not be the biggest hit of all time? I'm buying a front row ticket for a preview. And literally, it was the first time I'd ever seen a Broadway show where I was like, I, I, don't, I don't think that was so good. I, what's wrong? Yeah, the chemistry never happened. And the chemistry happened between Bernadette and Marty. But in hindsight, I almost always know what went wrong. On that one, it was, it was an idea that was past its time. That it was about a woman who only wanted to get married. And we did it in 1991, and nobody wanted to hear that story anymore. You know, They wanted to hear it in 1975 or whenever the movie came out, but they didn't want to hear it in 1991. And um, anyhow, I know in retrospect, but at the time, I had no idea. You know, and that production was famously a mess, too. Things went wrong in, in that show that were, that were pretty ugly. But I don't know. If, if anybody knew, if you knew, Ken, every show that you produced would be... A huge, not only a huge hit, but also an artistic hit from your perspective, you know? We, nobody knows. That's the great thing about the theater, isn't it? Nobody knows what, what it's going to be. Hamilton? What a dumb idea. You know? A, a musical about Alexander Hamilton in rap? I want to do a sketch where Lin-Manuel is like pitching that to producers if he was an unknown and no one, like, I want to do this thing and it's like rap music and founding fathers and, but none of them are white. And to see how that would go I over. did a show with him as an actor. We did the encore's version of Marilyn Monroe Along. He was Charlie Kravitz in that. And he was talking about it then. He'd already done a couple of concerts, one man con of just singing several songs from it. And he would say, "This is I know this is a dumb idea. This is what I'm doing. I know it's a dumb idea. But he worked on it for, I think, eight years. What I love about that and what we do here is that if, if he was in Hollywood and had pitched that idea in Hollywood, it had been kicked out of every studio in town. That's right. But on Broadway, that kind of idea can be done. What years, I love years ago, Michael Eisner, remember him who ran Disney? Where is he now? Uh, anyhow, Counting he, his money. <laughs> he came to Manny Eisenberg and said he wanted Manny to uh, produce plays. And he, 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 Michael Eisner, would bring an idea to Manny. And Manny would then hire the people to write that thing. And Manny said, it doesn't work that way in the theater. Because there has to be... And Manny used these words, an artistic impulse. And, and Eisner famously thought Manny was an idiot for saying that, you know? But Manny said it has to come from something the writers want to write about. 
Yeah, it's so right. I, I'm kind of an idea guy, and I come up with ideas for shows and plays, and I have on many occasions called, talked to playwrights who I know, and they're like, Ken, that's a really good idea. I can't write that. Yeah. It's not my idea. I can't, I can't get into right. it. I only, Ken Ludwig sent to me, I only write my own ideas because I need that artistic yeah, input. Absolutely. And that's why you're asking about about can you tell when a show is, is in production, whether it's going right or wrong? The answer is no, because all the impulses have to be right. And when all the impulses are right, it's magical beyond belief. I mean, you know when you see a show. You were the producer on The Spring Awakening, right? Spring Awakening was great. It was a great revival. And I loved the original. I saw the original three times. I saw your revival twice. I loved it. And I thought because Michael Arden, wasn't he the director, had the right impulse. Somehow, the way in which he told that story, and Spencer Lip, am I getting that right? Good, right? I guess yes. the Ginkgo Biloba's kicked in. <laughs> the, they had the right impulse for telling that story. And they had the right impulse. The, end, the way you guys ended that musical was brilliant. I thought it was an entirely new way of thinking about the end of that. And I cried like a baby when I saw it. All the impulses were right on that show, I thought. Every one of them. I thought every performance was right. But somehow, it all came together in a groundswell to make something which was really important. Advice to young people getting into the business, people that want to be drama critics? <laughs> drama critics, oh God. You know, people that want to be stage managers or just get into the business in general. You have a great perspective on overall what it takes to work here. Oh, just do it. Whatever it is, just do it. I mean, when I came to New York and I was thinking about maybe I should be a director, people said, well, just rent a space and just direct something. Just direct something. So if you want to, if and if you believe you can do something, just go ahead and do it. I think that's the only way. I still write some criticism every once in a while just to keep my hand in, you know what I mean? Because I enjoy it. And I also enjoy figuring out what I actually think about something and being able to say it succinctly. Um, but I think that's the only advice there is. I give advice to a lot of stage managers and some directors who want to get into the business. And all of it is just find a place and just do it. Just do your job. Okay, my last question, which is my other James Lipton-like question. Uh, it's called my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to pay you a visit and says, Peter, I want to thank you for your contribution to the theater. I'm going to give you something even more valuable than that Tony Award you got for it. I'm going to give you one wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy, that gets you so mad about Broadway, that keeps you up at night, that makes you pound a table, that makes you want to scream and yell? The one thing and only one that you want this genie to wish away. Okay. I actually know the answer. But I think you're not going to like it because you're a producer. I think investment in the theater is not only monetary. Um, I've written a whole proposal to Actors' Equity that they're roundly ignoring right now about the lab contract is one of the things that makes me berserk in our business because I've been working on... There's a musical, Bull Durham, which I, I really believe in. I really like this show, and I've been working on it for six years. Um, you know, and, you know, it's like $100 a week here, or the lab contract is like $1,200 a week, but it's, it's, it's not much, and it's short-term. All the actors who have done this show have contributed mightily to the shape, the direction, the music, the idea behind this. I've done many, many, uh, not only readings, but labs. I did the labs of Rocky. 
that go on and then I didn't get the show of Rocky. And there's nothing. There's nothing for it. The actors who contributed, the stage managers, even design ideas that come in, these are all investments in the theater. And my proposal to Actors' Equity is that everything be based on a royalty. That is, remember the old workshop royalty of 1%? Yeah, I have a, I'm not going to bore you or the podcast right now with the percentage breakdowns, but I think that once you are you as a an artist or a craftsman of any sort are involved in a show, you are therefore contributing and investing in that show. And I think that you have a right to um, a piece of it if it goes on, a tiny piece, not a huge piece, but some piece of it that acknowledges that you've made a contribution to that thing. So um, I find now there's been a lot of cynicism from actors and stage managers, any actors equity member, about doing uh, you know 29 hour readings, two week stage readings, or labs, because everybody says, well, you know they're going to hire a star, they're going to hire somebody else when it happens, and they've written lines as they go. They're, they're, they've shaped the entire thing. So the thing that I would wish is that as a community that we would recognize that investment is not only monetary. And I think that contributions to uh, an eventual... And look, you know, what is it, 20% or something of shows pay off? Isn't it? Or is it 25%? Some, some low percentage pays off. So the chances of anything happening are remote. This isn't so much about the money. This is more about... We are all involved in the same project and everybody has a contribution to make. Some people contribute money, some people contribute craft, some people contribute their artistry to the show. And I would wish that our business would rethink what investment means. It's a fascinating idea, first of all, and something that I am actually very open to. I love that idea of allowing people to participate. I think it gets them more vested in hopefully the success of the project and willing to do more. I also think even scale, you know, can come down. I think it's all about, let's invest. If the show fails, we all fail. If the show succeeds, we all succeed. It's a fascinating debate that is going to be, I think, at the forefront of uh, discussion over the next year or so as the Hamilton uh, situation continues to be resolved. Thank you for doing this podcast. Pleasure, Ken. Thank it's great you to see you, too. And congratulations to you, man. Thank your, you. Your career is really, really going beautifully. Thank you very much. Uh, plug the book for us. What's the name of the book? Oh, it's called, well, it's a boring title because uh, my produ my publishers, I want to call it Go or something, you know, punchy like that. My my publisher said, no, it has to be Googleable. So it's called Production Stage Management for Broadway. I start snoring when I say the title, but it's Googleable. But, uh, it's on Amazon, too. Production stage managed for Broadway, Peter Lawrence. Uh, got it. We'll include a link to it in the blog about the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, all of you, for listening. We'll see you next time. Don't forget, this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, get your show off the ground online. Participate or audit for only 25 bucks. Check out all the info on the blog.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.